Open your scriptures to Luke 4 and allow me to ask a question. What would a direct attack by Satan look like? A lot of times we have believed what the movies portray before us, and that would be moving objects and overt evil and levitation. And and I'm going to suggest that is a distraction. That's a diversion tactic. That's the sensational look over here when all along it's about bread. Turn these stones into bread. Test God to see if he really loves you. Worship something other than him, whether it's a friend or a phone or employment. And we're not even looking at that attack because we're so fixated over here at the distraction. It's one of the oldest military strategies in the world. And they still use it on the battlefield because guess what? It still works. And it worked this past week again in God's children. In the previous section that Sean preached for us last Sunday, Jesus had just heard a voice from heaven, right? You are my son. And immediately he goes out into the wilderness and he hears the voice of someone else. He hears the voice of what the passage defines as the devil. We move from baptism to battle, from voice from heaven to a voice from hell to comfort to conflict from water at the Jordan to an unknown location in the desert wilderness. You can't make a shrine of an unknown location in the desert. Jesus doesn't have any of his disciples. He's got no human support. He's out there, Mark makes this point, with the wild animals. And out from seeming nowhere comes the devil. It's a fascinating, fascinating narrative. Only two of the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, record Jesus' birth. All of the gospel writers record his baptism his identification with his people. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist, he, he's so startled. He's like, no, no, you, you should be baptizing me. But Jesus is identifying with humanity. He says, no, it needs to be this way right now. And then immediately from the baptism, then you have three of the gospel writers record this scene in the wilderness. You remember when Satan tried to undermine God's plan of redemption first in the life of Christ? He used a human agent. His name was Herod. And in order to do so, he tried to kill every male child two years old and under in the Bethlehem region. Now he moves to undermine God's plan of redemption a second time. And instead of working through a human agent, he appears to him in person, face to face. I actually believe that this is rare that Satan does this. He knows what's at stake. It says this in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, and Luke makes this point twice, 
full of the Holy Spirit. By the way, that happened at the baptism. The Spirit descended as a dove upon Jesus, filling him for the ministry, this next three and a half years of ministry that he's to accomplish. He returned from the Jordan and was led by, by who? He was led by that Spirit that is now filling him into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The wilderness scene that we're going to consider here this morning uh, help us to understand three things. The identity of Jesus, and that really is Luke's big question. Who is Jesus? And he presents to you a person Who is Jesus? Well, he's God's son. A matter of fact, twice Satan says this, if you are the son of God, do this. That's the issue, the identity of Jesus. That's the line of attack he takes, sonship, divine sonship. We also understand not only the identity of Jesus, but the identity of our enemy. Jesus believes in the devil. He has not cast him off as some superstitious, fairy tale-like elves at the North Pole. Matter of fact, Satan would love for you to believe that. That he's a fictitious character made up in minds of old, primitive, spiritual people. Because if you start to question his existence, he's already got you on your back feet. Because if he doesn't exist then there's no real danger. There is a transcendent evil intelligence that Luke identifies as the devil. Let me me explain that. If, If all we think is behind the Holocaust is Hitler and Nazi Germany, we are naive. If all we think is behind slavery is economics or racism, we are deceived. If all we think is behind kidnapping or child abuse is a socially awkward pervert, we are greatly misled. And if all we think is behind opulent but dead religion is misguided human religious leaders, we are again very deceived. How do you explain for the headlines this past week that appear in the news of kidnappings and hate and murder and genocide and torture. How do you explain that if you remove the devil from the picture? Matter of fact, Paul's going to write this in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our wrestling, we want to make it primarily about one another. We want to make it primarily about evil politicians. We want to make it primarily about godless pagan cultures. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood primarily. Listen to what he says. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's where the battle is. We're also going to learn about the identity of our struggle because we so often misdiagnose our real problems 
and struggles. We are in a culture, we are in a society that wants us to play the victim or the social relational martyr and fixate on other humans as our biggest problems and we miss the identity of our real struggle which is a present darkness, cosmic powers of evil. So let's learn from this text this morning what God would have for us. It's interesting that after Jesus is baptized and there is a voice from heaven, this is my son, there is no reception or celebration, but rather a wilderness. As soon as Jesus enters ministry publicly, between his baptism, identification with humanity, and him opening up the scroll that we'll see next week in this small synagogue at Nazareth, there are 40 days in the wilderness, full of the Holy Spirit, with an undivided heart to please the Father, he enters intense conflict. See, we have been taught for years now that if our life is easy and comfortable and without difficulty, we have somehow pleased God. And yet here you have the perfect son who heard, I am well pleased with you, and he enters into the wilderness where there is hunger and opposition and a face-to-face satanic attack. As Isaiah 53.3 said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Yet he was sinless. This actually helps us understand our difficulties, our soul struggles, our temptations, our opposition through a biblical lens rather than a cultural lens. At the baptism, he hears, you are my son. And at the temptation, he hears, if you are the son, do this. Christianity comes with tears. That's the truth. Christianity is not a type of escape from difficulty. It actually sometimes compounds the difficulty. Especially if you set your heart to follow God and endeavor to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, your portion will be doubt and struggle and opposition and voices that allure you to do something to displease the Father. Peter learned this lesson. He will later say this, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. And remember that your family of believers all over the world is going through the same kind of suffering you are. If you're determined to please God, to be filled by his Holy Spirit, there will be suffering. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record the duration of the conflict. It's 40 days. It seems to purposely draw other 40-day, 40-year occurrences in the Old Testament to our mind. For example, Moses spent 40 days on the top of Mount Sinai. It says in Exodus 34, 28, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate 
bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. It seems to be forcing our attention back to a similar event where Moses receives God's words. The 40-year wilderness wandering by the Israelites. Deuteronomy 8.2 says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years. I want to pause here to make an important sort of side note. Every time Jesus responds to the devil's attack, he quotes from what portion of Scripture? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6 to 8. That portion is specifically addressing the Israelites in the wilderness wandering. Jesus is now in a wilderness, and he is identifying with this nation of people in a very specific way. And then, of course, Elijah's 40-day journey with supernatural provision, 1 Kings 19.8. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And the picture here is being here is Jesus, a truer and better prophet. And again, on the top of the Mount of Transfiguration, two Old Testament personalities appear, Moses and Elijah. And a cloud goes and removes them. And again, God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Let's see the identity of Jesus in this text. Three distinct temptations that typically get our attention. Satan chooses three lines of attack. And two of them, look at verse 3 and verse 9, specifically make Jesus' sonship the issue. If, condition... Because you just heard a voice from heaven that said this. If that's true, do this. And folks, that's the hook. That's what is supposed to hook the son to become a rebellious son like the first Adam. Satan tempts Jesus to act in a way that validates his sonship. And of course, his goal behind these temptations is the exact opposite trying to lure Jesus to act, and this is really the essence of sin, to act independently from the Father. He came to do the Father's will. He is filled by the Holy Spirit. And Satan says, no, 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 you're the divine Son. You have the power to satisfy yourself. Turn this stone into a personal loaf of bread. By the way, is turning... Is changing the composition of something necessarily a sin? Jesus did that with water to to wine. Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. There was nothing sinful in that case. But in this case, what Satan is doing is, is he's saying, use your rights as the divine son to serve yourself. That's the first temptation. Not unlike the Garden of Eden, the front the frontal attack is about food and about knowledge again we often get fascinated by the diversion tactics we think all demonic possession is going to look like the demoniac of Gadara who's chained and who's cutting themselves and who's living among the cemetery we think that's how satan works we forget that he appears as an angel of light. 
He wears the robes of religion. He quotes scripture. We recognize the demoniac living among the tombs, but fail to see him in a quaint little country church with a white steeple. Or where 5,000 are gathered, passionately raising their hands to music that includes God's name. The front here, the frontal attack here in the wilderness, bread. Bread. The most common staple item. And idolatry. The worship of anything. All you have to do is bow down and worship Satan. I'll give you a shortcut, which is actually a dead end, but he doesn't tell you that. Or placing yourself in situations that test God. It might not be the top of a temple for us, how opulently religious. But if God really loved me, he would do this for me. Or he wouldn't have allowed that to happen to my child if he really loved me. See, Jesus understands here that making bread is not primarily about satisfaction, even though he was hungry but about acting independently from the Father. Look at verse 3 again. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, and he goes back to that portion in Deuteronomy, Man shall not live by bread alone. Satan says, Use your power to serve yourself. But remember what happened at the baptism. He was in our place. He identified with us. He came as a substitute for us, and Satan is trying to remove him from that substitutionary role. He basically says, act independently. Don't depend on the Father. Don't be led by the Spirit. Don't identify with weakness. Use your strength. Life is not defined by food, but by doing the will of the Father, and that will includes serving. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the last Adam, Jesus, does what the first Adam should have, and that is obeyed as a perfect man. The second temptation is an invitation to worship Satan and abandon loyalty to the Father. Look at verse 5. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. So yes, there is this transcendent, evil personality that is probably a lot more powerful than you and I can believe. He's not God, but he's a very powerful creature. And so here he is probably showing Jesus Egypt and Rome and Assyria and all these nations the nations that the Father has promised to give to the Son as an inheritance. And look what he says. And he said to him, verse 6, To you, Jesus, since you're the Son, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me. He is called the Prince of this world, isn't he? And I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. 
And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Jesus says this in John chapter 14, verse 30. He tells his disciples, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Jesus already had a confrontation with him in Luke chapter 4, and now he knows the identity of his enemy. The ruler of this world is coming. I love this because this happened in the wilderness. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. See, the kingdoms, it's not just about power, but about worship. That's the line of attack Satan takes. Sometimes we overlook the importance of worship. This is a cheap offer, but a real one. It seems that Satan is actually making a legitimate offer. And what he is offering to Jesus is the kingdoms of the world without suffering. He comes down the line of comfort, avoiding difficulty, avoiding crucifixion. It's an offer to get the kingdoms of the world without dying for them. And and if you peel it back and look at the attack for what it is, you know what Satan is offering Jesus? An alliance between the Son of God and Satan. And it comes down the line of worship. Can I ask you what you're worshiping? What you're really worshiping? What you what you express worth in Monday through Saturday, where your affections are tethered the most. The temptation is not only to join Satan, but for Jesus to avoid all that lies ahead in his ministry. By this time, I believe, Jesus could have opened up the Isaiah scroll and read about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, and saw how he was going to be so disfigured that he would no longer even look human. And he knew that was him, the suffering servant, the Messiah. And Satan says, you want the kingdoms? You can avoid Isaiah 52 and 53. All you have to do is worship me. Comfort, the avoidance of difficulty, a quick relief from pain and sorrow can be a strong temptation. And I think most of us in here know that. Satan will offer us a thousand ways to numb our pain, and in doing so, he will lead us away from a close, intimate connection with God. Only one being is worthy of worship. And so he says in verse 8, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And that brings us to the third attack, or the third temptation. And like the second, it involves a vision-like experience, and Jesus is taken to Jerusalem. It would have been quaint. Remember what we already read in in Luke chapter 1 and 2? He would go there every year as a young boy for the Passover feast. He's familiar with this city. He has memories of his mother there and Joseph Satan takes him up. There are several high points on the temple in Jerusalem. It's probably the royal porch on the temple's southeast corner. 
It looms over a cliff in the Kidron Valley. It is estimated it is about 450 down. And in a vision, or real, Satan says, you're the son? The father loves you? And he doesn't just say, jump. You know what he does? Because we didn't expect this. He quotes scripture. Did you see that coming? The sword that just defeated Satan on the first two attacks, Satan is willing to pick up and wield. And he quotes Psalm 91, two verses, word perfect. Psalm 91, 11 to 12. Look at verse 7 again. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, by the way, very religious, religious city, religious architecture, and he said to him, if, there it is again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. Here it is, Psalm 91. By the way, a passage, a psalm about protection in the wilderness, a psalm about angels protecting those whom God loves. Satan took a page out of the defense, and he says, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Here is the premise. If God protects his own and you are his unique son, then you can jump and not worry. I love what Jesus does. He doesn't argue with Satan. What does he do? He interprets scripture with scripture. Satan quoted scripture word perfect, but it was out of context. And that happens all the time when people are trying to champion and support their own lifestyle decisions, and when religious leaders are trying to intimidate and manipulate and control, and it is both satanic. And what Jesus does, he says this, but it is also written And he puts Psalm 91, as Satan quoted it, back into its context. See, what what Satan did is he turned the meaning of the psalm from trust God to test God. If he really loves you, well, you can jump and not worry about it. Let me read Psalm 91, 11 to 13. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And Mark, in his account, makes it very clear that Jesus is out there with the wild animals. Certainly this psalm would have been going through the Son of God's mind as a comfort. And Satan takes it and he twists it. Jesus responds with Deuteronomy 6.16. And in doing so, he lets Satan know that he identifies the attack that is happening. And he says, verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, basically, let's put that into context. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. He's not gone for good, but he's gone for now. He was resisted. Now, Satan has been in the business of tempting people for thousands of years. And up until the wilderness, 
Satan could boast a portfolio of complete success. Beginning with Adam and Eve, Noah, Moses, Samson, David, Solomon. The strongest man, the most powerful king, the wisest man. Move into the New Testament every single disciple, including Peter. All of them susceptible, all of them failing and faltering until this man, in weakness, in hunger, in the wilderness, and without human support. And Satan cannot have his way with Jesus. It's beautiful what happens. And it really shows us the identity of our enemy. Satan is an angel, a transcendent evil intelligence. And he says this. He's so subtle. Surely you should feed yourself, Jesus. The Father hasn't provided food for you in the wilderness. Surely the Father wants you to have the kingdoms of the world. Certainly it's not his plan that you suffer. Just give me your allegiance. Surely God will protect his son. I mean, of all people, so why not prove his love for you? What he is encouraging is independent action from the Father. And that is the essence of spiritual defection and desertion. As a matter of fact, listen to Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Did God really say? God knows that when you eat of it, you will be like God. Similar attack. And in Genesis 3.6 it says, She took of its fruit and ate independent action. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate independent action. And loyalty to God involves loyalty to God's word. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Loyalty to God involves loyalty to God's word. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. Psalm 1911 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Finally, I want us to look at the identity of our struggle. The comparison to Adam is suggested. Look back at chapter 3, verse 38. Because the baptism and the temptation really go hand in hand right next to each other because, because they share the aims of what is happening. The comparison to Adam is suggested by the final part in the genealogy, verse 38, the son of Adam, the son of God, talking about Adam. And there is a contrast that you're meant to pick up here. Adam and Eve were in paradise. Where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness. Adam and Eve were with tame animals. You got to name them. Jesus is with the wild animals. Adam and Eve had an abundance of food. They could eat of any tree of the garden except that one. Jesus ate nothing. Adam and Eve had the company of God walking in the cool of the garden. And Jesus in the wilderness had the company of the devil. And yet he was successful. And the question is, why? What are we to learn from that lesson? Because a lot of times, here's, here's the lesson that you hear preached. If you just quote scripture when you're attacked, you'll be successful. 
Let me ask you, is that true? Some of you have quoted five different texts of Scripture in the midst of temptation, and you still fell. Some of you have memorized, I know this, books of the Bible. Book, not the books, right? Like, like the entirety of Ephesians. And you still sin. So what is the point? The point isn't, quote two or three verses, and you will face success like Jesus. Because we already know in our experience that can't be the primary lesson. Jesus said this in John 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Yes, Jesus said this in, in Matthew's account, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He had just received a personal word in John 3 that said, You are my son with whom I am well pleased. But if Satan, and here's one of the lessons, if Satan is going to come to the word of John 1 and John 1.14, if he is going to try to twist scriptures with the living word, don't you think he's going to attack you the same way? To get you to twist the scripture mislead you. Jesus' perfect interpretation and obedience to God's word reveals he is, this is the primary lesson, God's true son. Knowing God's word and doing God's word are secondary to this. Knowing God's son and being in union with God's son Let me explain to you why. Hebrews 4.15. He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus said, he he didn't defeat Satan by quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 to say, okay, that's how you do it, now go be successful. He did it so you don't lose hope because he says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared, the Son, the unique Son, the one-of-a-kind Son, was to destroy the works of the devil. He took the power away from Satan. And he destroyed the last enemy that is death. So here's the beauty. He has been tempted just like you are yet without sin. We are tempted with sin. We need a high priest. And Hebrews 4.15 says, we have Christ, a high priest who, and I love this, and after, and after a lot of words and after about 35 minutes of monologue, I want you to hear this scripture. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Do you need that this morning? Just take inventory of the last seven days. And even after quoting scripture, you failed. You think about giving up. This is hard. How is this even possible to live a successful Christian life? We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, Hebrews 4.16, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, not with shame, Not with guilt, not with fear and intrepidation, but with boldness so that we may receive what? 
were going to the throne not to pronounce it was true. All I had to do was quote three scriptures. We may approach with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He is the one true high priest. Our Lord didn't endure this so we would have a model to follow. He did this so we could have mercy when falling and failing. Have you failed? Christ succeeded. Have you given in? Christ stood fast. Have you been overwhelmed by guilt? Christ is pure. Are you tormented by failure? Christ stands victorious. Are you undone by regret and shame? Christ was admirable, respectable, honorable, and obedient. And that's the beauty of union with Christ. You get his perfection, his obedience, his righteousness, his goodness, and his holiness. Jesus warned Peter, and this is our conclusion, in Luke 22. We're far ways away from chapter 22, but I want you to hear what he tells Peter. Simon, Simon, that's Peter. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again after failure, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. He didn't hear it, did he? Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. Peter failed to believe Jesus' words. He failed to believe the Son of God's words. And his disbelief led him into a very miserable episode of his life. And yet, Jesus restores him. Three denials, the reaffirmation of Peter later on. Peter now believes. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. See, that wasn't the spirit he had when Jesus warned him he was going to fail. And now he believes, he grows, and he identifies with Jesus. Satan is not on God's side, but he is under God's sovereignty. Final verse, Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself, Jesus, has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can, because we are in Christ, approach boldly your throne and find something. Find the mercy that we need and find the help that we need. Lord, even this new year, we have failed. We have not believed. We have willfully and ignorantly sinned. Lord, you told us that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we as your children sin, we have an advocate with you, your Son, Jesus Christ the righteous one. Lord, we do need a priest. 
We need his righteousness, his holiness, and we need someone to take our sin upon himself. Thank you for this gift of grace. And Lord, if there is anyone here who has not yet believed, who does not know the joy, not of a perfect life, but of a difficult life where we can continue to cast our anxieties on you because you care for us and where we can come to you as our advocate, the righteous one. Lord, would you open the eyes of their heart and would they believe today and know the joy of having their sins forgiven and having you, the one true God, as their Savior and King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.